0: Lomish, emergency. Uh, someone on,
1: line my son. on September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was
2: no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will.
1: And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at RansomPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
4: Ever driven by a vehicle on the side of the road? Do you always stop? Do you always go check it out, see what's going on? You know, can I help? Why did I do that that day? I don't know.
3: The bystander effect. It's a theory I think most of us are familiar with. Now, there's endless scenarios to which it can apply, but the fact of the matter is this. When we see someone in need of our help, our tendency is to ignore it. We've all been there. Let's use his example. You're driving past a person on the side of the road, likely in need of assistance. Part of you is probably thinking, pull over, see if they need a hand. But the other part of you has places to go, people to see, keep driving. It's okay. Someone else will stop and help them. What do you do in that situation? Chances are you take the latter and hope everything turned out okay. Never actually knowing what happened to the person. Unless it shows up on the news, of course. And you can assume this story did. But I say all this because to really put this story into perspective, you have to understand not just the unlikelihood of this Good Samaritan's act, but also the significance of it. I feel like it's changed my outlook. But still, I can't sit here and act like I would have done what Craig LaBelle did on the night of August 28, 2013 when he pulled over to the side of Highway 68 in Brown County, Ohio. No, what he did that night bears repeating.
4: We were on our way to New York to see my parents and family that lives up there. We're heading toward New York, but we want to go into Amish country in Ohio. We headed out toward Ripley and then took a right onto Route 68. It was a torrential rain. We hadn't seen rain like that ever. I mean, it was like the middle of a car wash. It was so bad. But we drove out of it, and we were coming to a point in the road where it was going to split. So I went left. We should have gone right.
3: Craig didn't realize it yet, but making that wrong turn may have been the most important mistake he's ever made in life. Now, heading down Highway 68 in the wrong direction just before sundown, Craig's eyes began to wander. He and his wife Sandy needed a place to turn around. He continued driving and scanning the area until something unexpected caught his attention. Headlights, shining from a wooded area about 20 or 30 yards off the side of the highway. He could tell what type of vehicle the lights belonged to.
4: Then I noticed the Jeep in the woods down off the shoulder of the road, and I'm thinking... They better hurry up, whoever's down there, because they're going to get caught in that rainstorm. Something's telling me I need to stop.
3: Craig pulls over to the side of the road. As he exits the vehicle, his wife Sandy is nervous. She encourages him to stay in the car, call 911, and await help. Good advice, right? It was getting dark. They had no idea where they were. And Craig had no idea what he was getting himself into. Nevertheless got out of the car and started walking down the hill towards the Jeep.
4: There was that thought that ran through my head. It's like, what are you doing? I have no idea why I'm there other than just checking it out. So I start yelling as I'm entering the woods saying, is anybody here? Hello? And I don't hear anybody. I don't see anybody. I could hear the windshield wipers going and I could hear a radio blaring away.
3: Craig fights his way through the thick foliage and crosses over an embankment. He's practically in the woods when the vehicle really comes into picture. It's a yellow Jeep Wrangler with a soft top, you know, the plastic windows. It hadn't been parked there intentionally. Based on the terrain, that would be impossible. Now, something bad had happened. That much was clear, but Craig didn't yet realize the severity. As he approached the driver's side window, he noticed a hole in the plastic.
4: So I put my face up there and looked through this hole, and I saw a girl in there, and she was just kind of slumped, laid back in the seat with her head tilted to the side and her hand on her knee facing up like she fell asleep. I started to try and pound on the canvas door To get her attention, and I'm not getting any response from her, and I realize something's not right.
3: The driver, 22-year-old Brittany Stikes, from the town of Ripley, about 10 miles away. Craig immediately dials 911. As he speaks with emergency dispatch, he continues searching the vehicle. At first glance, Craig saw no visible injuries to Brittany. It just looked as though she was unconscious. So he walked around the Jeep to the passenger side. Brittany wasn't alone.
4: I grab on that passenger door, and I open it, and there's a baby in a car seat. And the baby's got blood all over its forehead, and it's running into the eyes, and the baby's trying to rub its eyes, and just looking at me, not saying a word, just that blank look. And then looks toward the driver and says, Mama. I just went into straight panic mode. I didn't know what to do. Should I be taking the baby out of the car seat, trying to take the baby up to the side of the road? And I remember my wife yelling, saying, somebody's coming.
3: To Craig and Sandy's relief, a first responder had arrived. It was a firefighter from the neighboring town of Russellville. Craig directed him to the scene.
4: First thing he did when he reached in is he put his fingers on the side of her neck And he didn't get a pulse. And at that point, I noticed a wet spot under her armpit on the right side. And I noticed it was dark red blood. And I remember telling him, she's bleeding pretty bad over here. There's something wrong with her. As the first
3: responder begins working the scene, another responder arrives. And another. And another. In a matter of minutes, it was as though the entire town had arrived. Craig was eventually escorted back up the hill, to the side of the highway, where he and his wife began speaking with officers, answering every question they had.
4: And he said, uh, is there anything that you need to ask us? And I said, yeah, is she going to be okay? And he said, no, she's dead. And that was just like, wow. No, didn't see that coming. Did not see that coming.
3: Brittany Stikes was gone. A bullet had passed through her vital organs. She died quickly. Also lost in the heinous act was her unborn child. It turns out she was about four months pregnant when this happened. And as for the passenger, Brittany's 14-month-old daughter, Aubrey, she'd been shot in the head and was rushed to a nearby hospital.
4: I'm still trying to process it i mean it's it's just it's unbelievable it's a constant question in in the back of my head of who did it, what brings this to this point where we still don't have an answer to it. I worry about the case dying in the police hands. I feel like they've exhausted their resources at this point, and we still don't know.
3: While that might seem true, the Brown County Sheriff's Office is actively investigating this case, and they welcome any additional resources that could help solve it. So we're gonna see what we can do to help. Brittany's case has gone unsolved for nearly a decade now, and it's hard to understand why that is. This was a cold-blooded murder on a busy highway. There's been no shortage of leads and no shortage of theories, but trust me, that only adds to the frustration.
4: I don't know if it's to settle a score, or if it's about money, or what it was about, but somebody knows something, somebody has talked with somebody, and that needs to come out, it needs to come forward, so this family can find out once and for all who murdered her.
3: From Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV, I'm your host, Dennis Cooper. This is Season 2 of Culpable.
1: Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
5: Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival,
2: Mile. You will arrive at your destination.
3: Back in August of 2021, I started following this case, the murder of Britney Stikes. Now, there is some backstory to this, so before we get too far, let me catch you up to speed. See, one of our producers, Jessica Knoll, had told me about an unsolved murder that occurred in her hometown of Brown County, Ohio. She'd already begun looking into it herself. And due to location and her familiarity with the case, I just assumed it would become her story to tell. And that was the plan, at first. Still, though, I went out on the web and started doing some initial research. You know, just trying to learn more about it. What was supposed to be just a couple hours of work turned into a whole day. And there were many more that followed. I was hooked. I couldn't understand how this 8-year-old case which had been investigated by numerous detectives, both local and state, had significantly more questions than it did answers. How could such a reckless, homicidal act leave behind hardly any physical evidence? How is it that Brittany's family is still left asking not only the obvious, who's responsible for this, but also how? How did this happen? This case has crossed state lines. It's been in the hands of multiple investigative agencies. It's had numerous persons of interest Yet somehow, it remains unsolved. This story had the word culpable written all over it, and you'll understand why I say that as the story progresses. So, that's how we got here. Our story begins in Ripley, Ohio, the home of Dave and Mary Dodson, Brittany's parents. You'll notice that Jessica, our local producer-slash-investigative journalist, is here with me. She'll be my right hand this season, so get used to hearing her name and her voice. Also joining us on this initial visit are Mark and Jacob, who you may remember from our first season. We We pull up to a brick, two-story farmhouse with white trim and a large front porch. This must be the Dodson's place, better known as Red Oak Creek Farm. I can see a large framed photo hanging beside the front door. It's a picture I recognize from online. It's Brittany. Yep, we're in the right place. The gravel driveway is loaded with vehicles. We carefully try and maneuver into a spot between several of them. And these aren't just any vehicles. I'm talking an antique fire truck, a school bus, and two muscle cars, a bright orange Super superbee, and a bright pink barracuda. I had to learn what those were. Dave is what they call a tinkerer. Cars are just one of his many hobbies. I could see him standing on the side porch, staring out over his lot when we arrived. He's waiting for us. Good morning, Dave.
2: Good morning. Good to see you again. morning. I'm Jacob.
3: Jacob. Nice to meet you. As a reminder, Mark, Dennis. Dave and Mary welcome us inside. And after Mary calms their trusty dog, Dee, she's able to greet us properly. Mary has been busy. On the counter, there's a basket of freshly laid eggs, a large squash, and a bowl of cherry tomatoes that look straight from the garden. Mary's in a black tank top, with her distinct red hair pulled back into a ponytail. She's got a phone holstered to one hip, and a handgun sticking out the pocket of her jean shorts. Dave is significantly taller. He has a slender build, with a full head of white hair, and a long, bushy beard to match. Today is actually Dave's birthday, though that's only part of the reason we're here. For Dave, this day doesn't have the same meaning as it used to. It's been a long time since he celebrated, or even tried to for that matter.
5: You know, it's Dave's birthday. We've never done anything for his birthday since we lost a So we're going to have supper for his birthday.
2: That's awesome.
5: My youngest daughter, so she was here day day yesterday day. and baked, his, baked him a
2: cake. And... and they don't believe I'm 20 years old. Uh. <laughs> <No. 21. laughs>
3: Mary is moving around the kitchen like a pro. She loves to cook for her family. It gives her joy, especially today, knowing Brittany loved nothing more than bringing the whole family together. When she reaches a good stopping point on her food prep, we step outside so we can discuss the other reason we're here, Brittany. But Mary has just one quick disclaimer for us. So,
5: but that is something I do want to stress with everybody. Aubrey is here. Mm-hmm. We try not to talk about all this kind of stuff we're talking about now in front of her, mm-hmm. so if she was to come in or I would ask you that, we'll change the conversation or we'll get quiet, whatever. Absolutely. Because...
3: That's right. Brittany's daughter, Aubrey, is here. You'll be glad to know she survived that bullet that struck her head. And apart from a scar on her forehead, you never know the difference. We head around to the back of the house, to their covered wooden patio, which overlooks a grassy hillside property with plants and flowers in bloom. It's humid on the porch, but a small ceiling fan kicks off a slight breeze, making it bearable. Up on the wall hangs a wooden frame with the words, Howdy, kick off your boots and sit a spell. So we did. Another sign says, No peeing off the porch. We didn't, but I appreciate their sense of humor. As we get set up, Mary pulls out a pile of photo albums, grabs the first one, and starts flipping through it. The pages are weathered, and at times they stick to one another. Many of the photos are faded, but the memories are still vivid.
5: There's Brittany, and she came home from the hospital. She was my little princess, and we lived in saw there at the time, and the lady across the street made all of her dresses. She was born May 4th, 1991, and that's her first Christmas. That's her and her brother, Josh. And that brother right there loved his little sister. And then Dusty come along, that was the third one. Him and Brittany were oh. very close together when I had them. They were the closest ones.
2: And you know, when Dusty come is. along, and then Emily come along.
5: Tanner, and then Emily. Brittany
2: would always, Mom, I'll take the kids to bed and I'll read them a story. That was and Tanner and Emily. Yeah
5: every night at 9 o'clock, she'd tell the two little ones, give mommy and daddy a kiss, it's time for bed. And she'd go brush her teeth, put them in her pajamas, and she'd read them a story every night. And she'd tuck them in bed. And she was probably only, what, eight, nine herself? Something like that.
3: Brittany had a rare motherly love from a young age. It always amazed David and Mary. And it just grew and grew over the years.
2: She was very, very close to her brothers and sisters. I mean...
5: It was so funny because with the little ones, like, she loved the holidays. She loved Halloween because Emily was born on Halloween. So she, oh, mom, we got to make that extra special. That's Emily's birthday. She loved Easter because she loved teaching the littler ones how to hunt eggs. They'd practice a week before Easter. She'd bring them out every day, hide the eggs in the yard, and practice with the little ones to hunt the Easter eggs. And I used to teach um, Bible school, and I taught Sunday school at church. And when Emily came along and got a little bit of age on her, Brittany says, Mom, why don't I take over your class, and I'll keep Emily back here so that you can sit with Dad up front in church. She was probably, I don't know, only about, what, 12?
2: hmm And then after we lost Brittany, you just seen a change in all the kids. We
3: tend to think that tragedies bring families closer together. And a lot of times they do. But the Dodson family, they were already close. Very close. Which only made the loss of Brittany that much harder on everybody. Especially
2: her siblings.
5: Well, I think each one of them handled it a little different.
2: Emily, for a long time, she'd like put a wall up. She didn't yeah. want no one close to her.
5: Yeah. And Dusty, he just, and he told me this himself. He said, Mom, the only way I can handle it is just in my mind to pretend that she's on vacation or she's somewhere. That she's not gone. And Josh, Josh just, a lot of anger. And then he turned around and lost his wife, too. And So, but we have managed. We all still stay together. We all... We ride our motorcycles together. We have side-by-sides, and we go on trips together for the weekend. And, of course, I'm watching kids, and we eat supper together every night, which people used to tease us and say we were like the Waltons because all the kids and grandkids and everybody was here every night eating supper. But since we've lost Brittany, it's a little harder. We kind of all eat in the kitchen instead of around the dining room table, and it changes things. And it might just be little things, but it changes things.
3: The biggest challenge in maintaining that family dynamic is the fact that Brittany was the one who probably cherished it more than anyone else. Whether it was sneaking behind their backs to invite family over for a weekend hangout or insisting they play battle of the sexes together, you name it. To quote Mary, if it involved the family, she would have done it every weekend. Mary says the family does their best to maintain that spirit. It just looks a little different now. But if anyone can preserve it, it's Mary. After all, she and Brittany were just alike.
5: I always say she was my, my mini-me. You have to understand our family and that we do do everything together. And a prime example is Brittany. Here she was, a teenager in high school. And I would... Uh, spend my days uh, Thursday and Friday baking and she would stay up with me Friday night.
2: Instead of going out. Packaging
5: please. everything, getting everything ready, making labels, the whole nine yard and we'd have everything ready for Saturday morning. She'd go with me Saturday morning and she'd spend every Saturday with me at the farmer's market. Now what teenager does that?
3: You know well, what i a teenager. You can probably tell that Brittany was different than most other kids. And I mean that in a lot of ways, but especially in her priorities as a teenager. If you've been through those years, then you know what I mean. This isn't typical. Was she involved heavily in the fair at all?
5: Yes. Oh, my goodness. We raised pygmy goats for years here, and she showed pygmy goats.
2: Loved the derby at the fair. Loved the tractor pulls at the fair.
5: Yes. Her boyfriend at the time. Um, they built derby cars. Her and him and all of us built derby cars here every year. And they put them in the derby. And then after we lost Brittany Tanner, he's done a derby car in honor of his sister every year.
3: As we continue our chat, Mary, still flipping through the photo album, comes across a picture I had to ask about. It looked to be from prom.
5: She, uh, I think it was her senior year, she came to me, and um, she said, Mom, she says, I'd like to have a camo dress to wear to prom, and I said, you would, and she said, yeah, she says, but I can't find one I like, and I said, well, what do you like, and she showed me, and I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what you do, you go and you find your material that you want it made out of, and I'll make it for you. So she did. She found orange satin, the prettiest orange satin you ever seen. And she found her camo material. And she says, well, Mom, can I get you to do something else? And I said, what's that? She goes, well, will you make, it was her boyfriend at the time, she said, "Will you make him a vest and a tie to match. And I said, not a problem. So I had them all decked out for their senior prom. And she wore her camo dress, and he wore his camo vest and tie. So but that made her pretty proud. She was happy about that. So,
3: Mary closes one album and reaches for the next of many. It seems they've done a fine job documenting their family history, and I imagine they're extra thankful for all the pictures taken of Britney over the years. You can literally watch her grow up as you flip through the pages. Dave and Mary look almost at peace as they get lost in the memories, reacting with an occasional smirk here and there. At one point, Mary looks up from the album and gives us some advice.
2: Take pictures while you can. Aubrey still questions me about, tell me about mommy. And someday she'll say, Pappy, can we get all the pictures out? Show me these pictures of mommy. Tell me about mommy growing up. Yeah. And it's funny now because when I built the garage out there, we'd paint a car or something out there in the garage and Brittany would come in the garage the next morning with me and she'd say dad i love the smell of the garage after you've been working on something either the the sanding on the car or the paint fumes are still in here and she says something about that smell i just love it well back this summer i painted a couple of them in the garage and we got Aubrey that weekend, and she walked out in the garage, and she says, Pappy,
5: I love this smell I just in love here.
2: the smell of when you've been in here working on something and painting. Yeah. She says, it just, sm-. and I'm just like, wow, this is a flashback of...
5: Brittany. Brittany had a way about her. She loved people. She loved life. She had that energy about her. You know what I mean?
3: Hearing about the person Brittany was, I'm not surprised when Dave and Mary tell me their kids don't like talking about this stuff. I can't imagine what it's like losing a sister. And keep in mind, her four siblings were much younger then. The oldest, Josh, was 26 at the time. Dusty was 20. Tanner, 16. And the youngest, Emily, just 12 years old when she lost her only sister. The two youngest, Tanner and Emily, also happened to be sitting out on the patio with us now. They snuck outside sometime during our talk with David Mary. I can tell they are both apprehensive, but considering talking to us. Emily is leaning back in her chair, keeping to herself. She's no longer the kid pictured in Mary's albums. She's an adult now, with kids of her own. She was actually pregnant with her second child at the time of this. Eventually, she came around to the idea of a brief sit-down with us and told us a little more about her sister. What do you remember about her?
6: She was really down to earth. So that was a plus side, but definitely had an attitude.
3: Did y'all spend a lot of time together?
6: Yeah, we did almost everything together. Uh, A lot of times we'd take Aubrey to like the park or we went to the zoo a lot. That was one thing she did like to do. We went to the zoo all the time. Went fishing, we used to go out on Eagle Creek and go fishing all the time. My sister and me did everything together. I was always at her house. You know, we was always together. She was that one person that i call, and then she was kind of like the glue. She was always wanting to get together, wanting to do cookouts, wanting to, you know, do that kind of stuff. Wanted to make little, like, pointless trips of let's go to the petting zoo this weekend or let's go do this. She was pretty much what kept everybody really close. It was hard because, you know, you have that one person that you want to call, and that was my sister. Um.
3: To lose someone you're that close with at such a young age has to be devastating. You can't prepare for that. At least when you're an adult, you have some years under your belt, and not to mention you have responsibilities. Distractions maybe a better word. But for a kid, That had to be tough. But Emily says it's made the family closer. Again, they were always close. That wasn't up for debate. But after the loss of Brittany, their bond only strengthened. This family doesn't go it alone. They go together. You can see that just in the way they interact with each other. There was no magic in getting Emily and Tanner to talk about their sister. Just two siblings making a pack. If you talk, I'll talk. Here's Brittany's younger brother, Tanner.
0: I mean, she was a very loving, caring person and she was a great, great mother, I will say that. She had a heart bigger than anybody I know. I mean, she would do anything for you. It's even like just us going out there. I mean, she didn't have to have us out there pestering her every day, all day. And pretty much anything they done... He and his sister, said, Emily,
3: she were she the ones everything. doing the
0: pestering. She, she pretty much took care of us for the most part through the summertime. We all had to pretty much mature up and learn how to deal with the situation a lot faster. Because, I mean, it's one thing for, like, your grandpa or something like that to die. I mean, it's, it's hard on you, but it's expected. And... You definitely learn to deal with things in life a lot differently and have a look at life differently, of how everything should be.
3: You may not hear it in his voice, but you could see it in his face. He's shaken up from all this. He misses his sister. If
6: she was sitting right here across from me like I am.
3: Tanner steps away for a moment.
2: I'm amazed that you got him to talk that much about her. Because none of them have really opened up and said what was in their heart. Sorry
0: I just I don't talk about this stuff a lot. I try not to, because it's upsetting. But to answer your question, I would probably just tell her I loved her. I mean, that's the main thing. I loved her not much Western.
2: you know the hard part she wasn't involved in nothing it's not like she was on drugs or into illegal activities her. or And that's what pisses me off the most this was a good hearted person that this should have never happened to
3: The more we speak with the family, the more we can feel the rawness and the impact of their loss. We let the dust settle out back and head inside where Mary meets us in the kitchen. She's still prepping food, but it's much further along now. And I can tell all the conversation is weighing on her. She reiterates the importance of the day.
5: Well, um, Brittany was killed on her daddy's birthday. And we've really not done anything other than the candlelight vigil for Brittany. We've really not done anything for his birthday or anything. It's hard to celebrate. You know, you lost your child on your birthday. So this is the first year that we are doing something for Dave for his birthday. And we're going to go to the candlelight vigil and have the candlelight vigil. And then we are going to come home and have a big old dinner together. So we are gonna do that this evening.
3: Yes, you heard that correctly. Brittany was killed on her father's birthday, and not just any time in the day. She was actually en route to her parents for the celebration. Coincidence? We'll get to that later. As Mary said, you can imagine the challenge of honoring both life and death all on the same day. I don't know how you do it, but they're finding a way to make it work.
5: You told me I couldn't do Out that. of my onion You told me I couldn't do that. <laughs> Not
3: on, on the lines. As Mary does her best to tend to both the food and now her grandchildren, I take a moment to find Dave. He's actually in the room next to us, one of those living areas you step down into. As I approach, he's putting a DVD in the player.
5: Let's meet him right now. Contestant number one, please, Angela Lynn
2: Contestant number two from Ripley, Brittany Ann Dodson.
3: Brittany saunters across the stage of a pageant at the local tobacco festival, wearing a black sequin dress with a number two pinned to her hip. Her wavy brown hair sways across her back as she comes to the front of the stage and grabs the microphone to introduce herself. Good
6: evening. I'm Brittany Dodson, the proud daughter of Mary and David Dodson of Ripley, Ohio. I attend Ripley High School. And after graduation, I plan to attend AMI and further my job in motorcycle construction.
3: We watch as Brittany walks off the stage and the next contestant takes her place. Dave turns the volume down and turns towards us.
2: But it's kind of a rough day. I mean, I'm used to her being here.
3: What were birthdays like? before eight years ago
2: everybody was always here on usually on the birthday and there she is. Right there. Brittany, your future plans are to build a custom motorcycle how will you overcome the obstacle of being in a predominantly male profession
6: I think because it's a male it drives me to want to do it more. It drives me to want to prove everybody that a female can in this kind of business and make a living in them.
4: Woo! Thank
3: you. Number two. Brittany Dave reacts with a smirk and says Brittany loved being told she couldn't do something. Look, there's no way to put yourself in this family's shoes, but we're here on this day to try and walk alongside them. Up next is the hardest part of the day. Every year, the family has this tradition. A roadside memorial, you could call it. The one Mary mentioned earlier. It's their way of honoring Brittany, keeping her in the hearts and minds of the folks who still attend these, and hopefully, anyone passing by. Back at the gravel driveway, where our day began, we start figuring out who's riding with who. Between the Dodson family, all the grandkids, in our team, there's more people here than you can count. I'm told I'll be riding with Dave in his white, compact fire truck, courtesy of the Ripley Fire Department. It's now a retired historical vehicle, as written in gold letters on the driver's side door. I'm also told Aubrey will be tagging along with us. I thought that might happen when I heard what vehicle we were driving in. Aubrey, care if I squeeze in here next day? Come on. I hope not. I'm going for it. As we crawl down Highway 68 in the antique truck, looking out to the left or the right, everything kind of runs together. There's nothing to really grab your attention, just a bunch of green lining the highway. But when that monument finally came into view, it was pretty hard to miss. Some of the early comers were already standing around it. The wooden cross towers over each of them. Attached near the top of the cross, just below Brittany's name, is a large floral heart with wooden wings jutting out from the sides. It's modeled after the charm on Brittany's favorite necklace she wore everywhere. The same design can be seen on the backs of Dave and Mary's bright orange shirts, along with the words, "In loving memory. Mary is already standing near the cross, chatting with a small group of people. I go over to eavesdrop.
5: They're assembling lights for me, because he brought lights to put around the... Yes, um, the gentleman there with the flag shirt on, he's the one that brought the big beautiful angels. And
3: Out of the corner of my eye, I see red and blue lights pulsating. An unmarked police car pulls up with the rest of the vehicles, and an officer emerges from it. He walks over to Dave.
0: How we doing? Doing well, how are you? Doing all right.
3: This is Sergeant Quinn Carlson with the Brown County Sheriff's Office. He's the one currently investigating Brittany's case. He comes here every year in support. I'm very hopeful in the avenues I'm pursuing. I will get you closure on this. Sergeant Carlson got here just in time. I can see white candles getting passed around.
5: Are we ready? If you want to gather around so I don't have to yell... (laughs) I'm loud, but...
3: (laughs) As tradition, everyone holds a lit candle, and Mary stands front and center, addressing the crowd, and simultaneously, her daughter, Brittany.
5: We come here to remember Brittany, and blessings come to you in different shapes, different forms. And today, the only thing I could think of was blessings. What I want to say is, even though you may be having a hard time in your life, look for the blessings. The blessings are there. I may not have my daughter with me physically, but she's been with me all day. The blessings are there. Bob, will you say a prayer for us?
1: Lord, we first want to give
2: you our praise and our thanks for how faithful how good you are to us, and most of all, Lord, for your mercy and grace okay. and the peace that you can bring to our lives. And we know that the for the trees.
3: As the crowd starts to disperse, out of the blue, I hear Dave calling us over to him. He says he wants to walk us down into the trees where
2: Brittany's Jeep was found. We follow. When you see where I'm taking you, you'll understand why I say she wasn't. She was trying to get away from somebody. See, they never would tell me where she was at, but the way I figured it out, I got here and I started walking, and then I started finding the busted mirror and pieces of the Jeep laying up in there. So I knew where the Jeep landed. She came down through here and, and landed clear up there in them trees. It was sitting right here. She was trying to get away from somebody. I don't buy the whole thing that she died the second they shot her. I still think somebody went down there and finished what they started.
3: Dave has his theories. He's of the belief that the final shot was taken where we're standing now, rather than on the highway. That in cold blood, someone intentionally took Brittany's life. The life of her unborn child, and very nearly, her daughter Aubrey's life. His theory could be right. But know that this is a case where everyone has their theories. Sergeant Carlson tells us that from the outset, one of the biggest challenges with this case is how it can seem so random, yet so directed at the same time. It begs the question, was it coincidence? Or was it by design? Just determining a motive can be exhausting. And as far as determining who is culpable, well, that's also proven to be quite the challenge.
1: When you get involved in something of this nature and this serious, and you can go down certain avenues where you think you got this thing solved, everything's making sense, everything's clicking, just to find out at the end, it absolutely led nowhere. To pull yourself out of that kind of hole and to look at it with fresh eyes is very difficult.
3: If we're gonna look at this with fresh eyes, we'll need to put people's theories aside and try to come at it from a new perspective. The answers are out there. We just got to find them.
1: This is a true whodunit, because you can look at this from all the normal angles of casework of homicide investigations, all the different ways they tell you to look at it, and every one will lead you to a different conclusion.
3: This is the trip that started everything. It's what really got our wheels spinning. But looking back now, we were barely scratching the surface.
5: Britney called me, couldn't breathe, like, crying, and I was like, Brittany, what's wrong? Do I need to come get you?
6: I'm sure you've had people accuse you of something in life. Now, magnify that by a thousand, and they're blaming you for killing your own
1: family. I
6: mean, if that don't piss you off.
1: Well, I know from different people we've talked to and in different interviews that have been done that some people we've talked to know more than they've told us about but also there's somebody out there that knows everything.
3: Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Minery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright and Payne Lindsey Our senior producer is John Street Additional production by Todd McComas Editing, mixing, mastering and sound design by Dayton Cole Pat Kicklighter Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team If you have a podcast or are looking to start one check us out at ResonateRecordings.com This episode features the song Forest for the Trees by the Apache Relay our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor robbins with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcasts. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website culpablepodcasts.com If you enjoyed this episode please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly... If you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information. Or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 126, or by email at quinn.carlson@bcoso.com. at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.